Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Brotherwell Brewing. They're the official local beer of the Waco History Podcast. Located on historic Bridge Street, swing by and pick up some of their Waco-themed brews, like Hidden Herd, an amber lager named for the mammoths that roamed this area tens of thousands of years ago. We talk about them on episode 10. Visit brotherwell.com to learn more about their Growler Club, a year of fills for one low price. That's brotherwell, W-E-L-L dot com. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over 100 years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Institute for Oral History, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. In this episode, baseball in Waco. Babe Ruth hit a ball up on top of the Percy Madison Building. Baseball has a long and storied history in Waco. Stephen tells us about some of it, including Waco's affiliated minor league team. Saw one of his box scores where he struck out 20 batters. The story even connects back to Waco's 1953 tornado. They ran out and they got under a train as the tornado went through and took out the park. And now, join us on a trip into Waco's past. Cross the Brazos and Waco, right All right, Stephen, what are we talking about today? Well, Randy, just to contextualize when we're recording it, we're still in the midst of the COVID pandemic. And one of the things been placed on hold that's led to some creative programming by ESPN and other outlets <laughs> is baseball. There's no sports right now. It's such an odd event. In fact, today, the day we're recording, uh, Mexico canceled its uh, baseball season for the first time in 100 years. You know, I did see some professional sports on TV that was live recently. It was like the cornhole national game. Yeah, this is the salad (laughs) days for cornhole uh, (laughs) and other social distancing sports. (laughs) So I've been thinking about baseball, professional baseball, especially And so Waco has a history of having uh, professional baseball teams. That's interesting. It uh, really goes back uh, all the way to the end of the 19th century. Waco's had several different teams that were organized. Uh, Waco Navigators, a lot of folks, older folks that may be listening may remember the Waco Pirates. We talked about the Navigators on the Brazos episode because they're supposed to be navigating the channels. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So that's during that period where Waco's placing great hopes on the uh, Brazos becoming navigable. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this early part in the century, in the first part of the 20th century, where we're going to get the Brazos navigable population was going to take off, industry was going to take off, and yeah, so prophetically they named the uh, baseball team the Waco Navigators. Didn't work out. <laughs> it did not work out. So only one affiliated minor league team we've ever had in town, and that was an affiliate of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Interesting. So the Waco Pirates were here from uh, 1948 to 1956. But the history is longer than that. I I think, and of course, there's a lot of baseball history here locally, but one individual that I think is really interesting is an individual named Rube Foster. Uh, Actually, Andrew Foster was his Christian name. Actually, Rube Foster got his nickname by beating another pitcher, white pitcher named Rube. So he just Uh, took his name? Yeah. So after that, they started calling him Rube Foster. So he was Andrew Foster up until 1902 when he beat beat this Phillies pitcher named Rube. And he is an African-American baseball player, played in the colored leagues. And actually, Rube Foster is extremely important. He's in the Baseball Hall of Fame for organizing what we think of as the professional Negro Leagues that start in 1920. Hmm. Not only a great pitcher and a great player, but a great organizer of professional baseball for African-Americans. And so Rube Foster, he's from Calvert, but his first professional experience, the first semi-pro team he plays for is a uh, colored baseball team in Waco. And it was the Waco Yellow Jackets. And so the Waco Yellow Jackets were active. There are a lot of colored baseball teams in the latter part of the 19th century. So, of course, this is an era of segregation. So you have white teams playing. You have black teams playing. But Rube Foster played here in in, uh, 1897, 1898. He became really known as a great pitcher. I saw one of his box scores where he struck out 20 batters. Wow. And of course, if you, you had success, you would move on to bigger markets. And he ends up in uh, Chicago and has a lot of success in Chicago with a, with a colored baseball team there. But yeah, his professional career uh, began right here in Waco, which is pretty amazing. So how many other leagues nearby were there? I mean, other teams were there? Well, Waco had several teams. Uh, I mentioned the Waco uh, Yellow Jackets. There were the Waco Wonders. Uh, which which was another team that the Yellow Jackets would play. Uh, the Yellow Jackets were by far the most dominant team of that period. In fact, I think it's the Austin Reds and Waco Yellow Jackets were kind of the two best teams in Texas uh, during this time period. Uh, later on, there's the Waco Cardinals, which is a colored team. There were several other teams that would compete with each other and compete. You know, these are barnstorming teams. So they're based in Waco, but they're going wherever they can find competition. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're playing games all over. What kind of league rules did they have? Did they have designated hitters and stuff like that? Pitcher hit. Okay. You know, this, this is years. This is before the DH. So the, the pitcher is hitting back in this period. This is predates Katie Park for those that are familiar with Katie Park, which becomes kind of the center for professional baseball activity in Waco. It's It opens in 1905. It has a famous opening I'll talk about here in a minute. Uh, and it's actually eventually raised in 1965. The professional team, the Pirates, actually leave leave Waco in 1956. And so for about 50 years there, it's kind of the home of professional baseball in town. 
And Katy Park, when it's dedicated in 1905, one of the first things that it hosts is a visit of the president of the time. Hmm. So, Randy, for $1,000, oh gosh, who was president in 1905? I'm going to fail this history quiz. I have no idea. Okay, well, it's, it's better to say that than say Abraham Lincoln or, or <laughs> something like that. So, Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt comes and dedicates uh, Katy Park, in fact, when they host Teddy Roosevelt, at, as far as I can tell, when they host Teddy Roosevelt at Katy Park, it's the largest event that's ever held at Katy Park. You know, uh, I should have had that one because there's that picture of my great-grandfather and Teddy Roosevelt in the same frame. So I should have known that. That's right. Yeah. And we <laughs> talked about that. They may have boxed at, at one point in time. We had that conversation on one of our other episodes. <laughs> but Katy Park, just so we could get an idea of, of where that is in town. If you're looking at the modern landscape and, of course, the silos, magnolia silos have become a reference point for the modern landscape of Waco. If we're standing in front of the silos, that next block to our left would be where Katy Park was. It would have been along 8th Street and Jackson. And the home plate for Katy Park would have been on the railroad side. So that's kind of where that Czech brewery is going in right now. It is, yeah. That would have been in the outfield. Okay. And actually, it, right across from the uh, center field would be the Percy Medicine Building, which we now know as the Findery. Okay. And there's that old gas station that's across the street from it. That was there at the time. So those two buildings were there at the time. And of course, there are, uh, if you hit a long enough home run, you know, say 450 feet, you could hit the Percy Medicine building or you could hit that little gas station uh, on the other side of the fence. There are urban legends floating around about some how far some of these balls were hit out of Katy Park. But it sat on that plot of land. So Magnolia Press would be sitting in the outfield. Magnolia has announced that they're redoing a segment of Katy Park in fact, I got an email today about it. The ballpark, Katie Ballpark at the Silos, which is going to be the same home plate area, but a reduced wiffle ball field uh, is going to be on the railroad side <laughs> uh, where Katie Park used to be. So I, I doubt you'll be hitting balls as far as they did back in the day. I don't think you will. And I, and I think that would, I'm sure they've thought through that. That would be problematic because you knock something over there. It's, uh, it, it be it's, expensive. Not, it's not cheap. Yeah. Uh, and so Katy Park's dedicated with much fanfare. Again, I think it's the largest event. The coverage I saw of it were 40,000 people crammed in to see Teddy Roosevelt. And this is during a time period where Waco doesn't have a population. Well, that's about Waco's population is about 40,000 people. Hmm. This is the period, this enters into the period where the Waco Navigators are playing at Katy Park. And so we have, the Navigators definitely have some success. This is back in an era where you didn't have playoffs. You either won the pennant or you didn't win the pennant. So who is the rival for the Navigators? Not sure who the biggest rival of the Navigators were. So we have the Texas League, of course, which has been a long operating minor league. The Navigators were members of the Texas League. It's been operating since the late 19th century. Waco professional teams are in the Texas League early on. That's the Navigators. And then uh, the Pirates are going to play in the big state league. When you think about minor league operations in Texas, even today, some of these teams are, are still very active. I think of the Corpus Christi. But in that Big state league, the loop that they played would be Abilene, Wichita Falls, Victoria, Beaumont, Port Arthur, and Temple. And so 
you know, some of that would fluctuate from year to year, depending on how profitable it was for the primary club. And so they would move around, teams would move around based on gate. In fact, the Waco Navigators are going to leave in 1920 to go to a more successful market, hmm. Wichita Falls. So that's the early years of Katy Park. We have the Navigators. And so it's not until 1925 that Waco gets another team. And again, this is the business of baseball. The Galveston Cubs are going to relocate to Waco. Okay. Another Texas League team, uh, which had jumped up to Class A, and uh, they're going to stay until 1930 when they're sold back to Galveston. <laughs> so, yeah, business is driving all these decisions that are going on during this time period. This, this is going to play out ultimately to the, the death of the Pirates here in town. One of the, the legends of Katy Park comes during these Cub years. There's a couple of different stories that come from the years of the Waco Cubs. The biggest one, of course, is when the 29 Yankees come to town. Mm. So the 1929 Yankees come and they play the Waco Cubs in a game. And uh, there's all sorts of stories about this game. I was able to find the New York Times story about it, which was really interesting. To cut through a little bit of the urban legend uh, surrounding this game, uh, one of the urban legends was Babe Ruth hit a ball up on top of the Percy Medicine Building, hit a home run that landed on top of the Percy Medicine Building. Nice. Which is which is not the truth. That did not happen. But there's <laughs> actually a better story than that. First off, the the Cubs lose. Which, I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the Cubs lose thirteen to three. Game three. Uh, Babe hits a double. It hits a youngster in the head. Hmm. Babe hits a line drive double, hits a kid in the head, and uh, Babe goes over to make sure the kid's okay. What a memory uh, that that kid had that day. Uh, and <laughs> so he wasn't seriously injured then? He was, not, he was not seriously injured. In fact, the coverage, the journalistic coverage of the time, I think they said a grapefruit. That's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did he get to keep the ball at least? I think he got to keep the ball. <laughs> but this game really goes off the rails. People were so excited to uh, see the Yankees in person. Of course, they loved their hometown Cubs, but they were there to see the 1929 Yankees. Right. Uh, Lou Gehrig hit a home run. Lou Gehrig did hit a home run. I'm trying to th see how, how uh, big the knot was on his head. <laughs> So Ruth rushed out to make sure certain the youngster he had hit was not seriously hurt. He then gave him an autograph ball to match the bump on his head. <laughs> so, so it's baseball sized. It was a baseball sized bump <laughs> on his head. And then after that, Ruth retires. He's he's not out in right field anymore. But there's these stories of people kind of crowding Ruth in right field. So Katie Park at the time was only designed for about four thousand people. There were eleven thousand people at this game. Wow. And so they kept crowding into right field where Ruth was. The, the story goes that by the eighth, confusion began to kind of reign in the game so much that Babe retired. And when Babe retired, the crowd, according to the New York Times, cast aside all restraint because <laughs> uh, they'd seen Ruth. Every time a Yankee hit a ball after that, the crowd would playfully bowl over the Waco players and take the ball away from them. <laughs> And so this thing kind of gets out of hand and the Waco Cubs don't bat in the bottom of the eighth. They call the game off. Wow. Uh, and so the Waco Cubs do not take their last turn at bat. Uh, they could have come back uh, since they got the bat list. So I guess they didn't bat in the ninth. The bottom of the ninth, they didn't bat. So the Wacoans are taking away the ball of the, the Waco team 
to help the no Yankees? they're trying to grab yankee balls oh uh, so okay I, so as the yankees would hit balls the crowd would go after trying to get a souvenir they on the field yeah they would get on the field to <laughs> grab the ball of the opposing player uh, as a souvenir players as a souvenir because wouldn't wouldn't you want a baseball hit by someone on the 29 yankees yeah and i think security is a little better nowadays Yes, I'm sure security is a lot better than it was. And you got 11,000 people packed into a uh, to yeah. the stadium that only seats 4,000. So the police uh, is already the, overwhelmed. Yeah, the fire marshal must have been pulling his hair out. <laughs> so that's one of the famous stories during the Cub years. The other have to do with an individual named Gene Rye. He was a baseball player named Gene Rye. Okay. Gene Rye's actual name, Eugene Mercantelli. So Eugene Mercantelli, or otherwise known as Gene Rye, hits three home runs in an inning. That's pretty good. How's that and, work? Uh, on <laughs> August the 6th, 1930. So there, there are all sorts of questions as if had this ever happened before or had this has this ever happened again since. According to Elias Sports Bureau, uh, no other professional baseball player in any league has equaled that mark. And actually, so 12 total bases in the inning, I think, is a record as well. And so he does this within Katy Park. You know, it's unusual that a player would even get the chance to bat three times in an inning. Yeah, I'm just wondering about how that even works. Yeah, and of course, there's stories about uh, each at bat, the uh, final at bat. He, he ends up with eight RBIs. Uh, in one inning. And so it was a remarkable feat. There's stories of the second time Rye comes to bat, Waco fans begin to kind of stir and get excited. And the, the uh, second uh, run homer puts the Cubs ahead uh, 12 to 6. And a few Cub fans are buzzing in hopes that he might get another chance to bat. And ahead of Rye, a batter walked and three consecutive hitters singled to bring Rye back to the plate with the bases loaded. He got a ball and two strikes on him. When, according to uh, uh, one observer, uh, Newman, this is the pitcher, threw a curveball that uh, broke over the heart of the plate. And uh, Rye, like all close followers of the game, realized that this gave him an opportunity to write his name uh, in the record book. He hit a home run. And it was the hardest hit of the three, supposedly. The Cubs went on to score 18 runs in that particular inning and win 20 to 7. Wow. So Gene Rye bats 367 that season and goes on to play for the Boston Red Sox. He just plays for them for 17 games in 1932. Hot commodity. Breaks his wrist after tripping over second base in 1932, and that ends his major league career. But what mm. a feat. So another event that has to do with the Waco Cubs or during the Waco Cub years that's kind of interesting occurs on March the 5th, 1930. And this brings in Negro League Baseball again, which we were talking about earlier. And so you would have Negro League games at Katy Park, you know, reading the advertisements about for those games. There's, of course, segregated seating at the park, uh, but they also had designated seating for ladies if they wanted to go to the baseball game. But Katy Park, you can think where it's located. I mean, it really becomes kind of a center of entertainment center for Waco. It's very central there. Mm -hmm. There was often a game going on. And so it was a very popular place to go see a game. Sometimes you had to wait out the train <laughs> as, it, as it went by. But yeah, it was a popular place to see a game. And so all members of the Waco community of that generation have memories of, of Katy Park. Prior to Katy Park, were the Negro Leagues playing at other 
parks or were they just they were prior to that and they continued to play at other parks west end park uh, which I, I haven't found on a map yet uh, west end is a place where they they played often so actually rube foster that i talked about earlier never played in katie park he played in other venues in town but we were talking about accomplishments of the 1930s on May 5th, 1930, the first night professional baseball game in Texas history occurred. And so you can think in recent memory, well, it's been a long time now, but uh, how the Cubs just played day games for more than a century. This is during a time period where they were just playing day games and weren't playing night games. But then the world famous uh, Kansas City Monarchs uh, that were a Negro League team uh, came to town and they had a portable light set that they set up. Uh, the Kansas City Monarchs played the uh, Waco Black Cardinals in a game on May 5th, 1930. The Monarchs crushed the Cardinals eight to nothing. But what it did was it demonstrated the viability of night games. Mm-hmm. Right after this, actually a little over a month later, the promoters here in Waco see profits that might be possible from hosting night games, and they put up, they like Katy Park, and so they have they have a night game just over a month later, and they begin to regularly have night games, and of course, other baseball stadiums pick up on this as a way to generate more revenue, and, and they put up light systems that have night games. Uh, the Kansas City Monarchs, which are a fascinating uh, story, a great a Negro League team, will actually be led by, and one of their stars will later be, Andrew Lewis Cooper, who is from Waco. He's also in the Mm -hmm. Baseball Hall of Fame, who's a famous Negro League player from Waco. He's interred now out at the Greenwood Cemetery in town. But Andrew Lewis Cooper was a a great player for the Monarchs. Mm -hmm. A great player and and manager at one point uh, for the Monarchs going to win many championships and so those are some things during the cub years as i said in 1930 the cubs are going to be sold back to galveston (laughs) so we're not going to have a minor league team that's calling waco its home but you have katie park stays active hosting all sorts of things it would host tournaments it would host a, a city tournament it would host state tournaments. For a while, Katie Park hosted the championship of the uh, South Texas Colored League and the West Texas Colored League that would come together and play their championship in Katie Park. Hmm. So it has regular activity, but it does not have its own team until after World War II. So what happens then? I hoped you asked that. <laughs> so in 47, the Waco Dons are the uh, independent minor league team is organized and plays for one season. And they were <laughs> called the Waco Dons, D-O-N-S. Is that like a person or what? What's the, what's a, a, a Don is an important person. It's okay, kind of an yeah. older term we don't use anymore. Right, right. The Dons don't last long. 47, that 47 season they play, 47, 48. And then this is when the Pirates organization okay. comes into Waco. And, and Waco really, as far as professional baseball, reaches its height mm-hmm. as a affiliated minor league team. Uh, they're going to be here from 48 to 56. There are some interesting things that happen. One of the things that's talked about that happens in that Waco Don season is Monty Stratton, M-O-T-Y-S-T-R-A-T-T-O-N. And there's actually, I have not seen it, but there is a uh, Jimmy Stewart movie, The Monty Stratton Story, where Jimmy Stewart plays Monty Stratton. Wow. And who was Monty Stratton? Monty Stratton lost his leg in a hunting incident in 1938. But he goes on to pitch. It was a Chicago White Sox pitcher. 
and he has this comeback and he has a minor league career with one leg. So he's and, pitching, uh, standing there with one leg? Yeah. Does he have like a... Uh, he's got a false leg. I haven't seen pictures of Monty Stratton, but I know he throws a shutout that day for the Waco Dons. Yeah, so he plays in the minor leagues from 46 to 53. You can rent, if you can find it, The Stratton Story, which is a 1949 film starring uh, Jimmy Stewart as uh, Monty Stratton. Did he have to run the bases? He did. He did. And there's these stories about him running out hits to get on base, which had to be hard to watch. So he spent quite a bit of time experimenting and learning how to pitch on his prosthetic leg. Fielding bunts was a problem, as you might imagine, to be nimble enough on that prosthetic leg to field bunts that might come at him. After 47, he never appeared in more than four games in a season, but he was with multiple minor league teams. I want to watch the movie now. Yeah, so I want to see the Stratton story, too. And he beat the Paris Red Peppers, just in case you're wondering who he shut out that day. (laughs) And so in 48, we have the uh, Waco Pirates. And so most folks that remember professional baseball in town are going to remember the Waco Pirates. So the new name and the new patronage for the Waco Dons rebranded the Waco Pirates, brings on success. This is they're in the big state league now. They win the championship that next year, but then they enter into a a period of decline. Hmm. Uh, And they're really challenged uh, in the early 1950s to field a strong team. Uh, They had a respectable season in 51 and 52 and 53 are tough. In fact, their record in the 52 season was 29 and 118. That's pretty terrible. (laughs) Yeah, that that stands is actually, I think, still one of the worst professional uh, baseball records for a team. So that's 1952. Those familiar with this podcast or with the history of Waco know what ha- what happens in 1953. Mm-hmm. So Katy Park is downtown. And so the tornado completely destroys Katy Park. It almost takes the lives of the general manager, Buster Chatham, and the business manager, Jack Berger. In fact, they were at the field that day planning for a game that night. Again, the newspaper hadn't promised bad weather. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to play the Greenville Majors that night when the Twister touched down. And ironically, Chatham especially, who had always complained about the trains, again, this was a problem with Katy Park, is the, is the uh, Kansas, Missouri, and Texas railroad line ran right beside Katy Park. So mm-hmm. you, you can imagine during a game what that must have sounded like. I uh, was saved by a train that day. They ran out and they got under a train as the tornado went through and took out the park. Wow. The season continued. They got invites from Kilgore, Bryan, and Brenham, but they chose to go to Longview, Texas, to finish out the season. It's a bit of a drive. And then what happens in 1954 is is remarkable. The stadium is rebuilt. It's a grander and more modern edifice than it was before they build a new great stadium for the pirates to call home pirates are going to win the title in 1954 good comeback Uh, story yeah it's a wonderful comeback story roman mejias who is one of the most famous players in waco pirates history has a 55 game batting streak in 1954 i mean at one point he's threatening joe dimaggio his minor league history streak but it stops at 55 games i think it's still the third longest batting streak in minor league history 
Wow. Um, Mejias is going to go on and play several years for the Pirates. So Mejias, at one point, to continue this streak, he's a Cuban-born player that plays for the Pirates. He does hit a home run off the Percy Medicine building at one point in this streak. His stats over the streak, he hits 419 with 19 doubles, five triples, and seven home runs. Uh, an incredible streak. Eventually, this team is going to finish 105-42, and 42, so a dramatic turnaround. <laughs> yeah, from 1952 season. In fact, uh, baseball historians that work on minor league history have ranked them the 25th best minor league team ever. So it was a great, really a great team. And it was really the height of professional baseball in Waco. It's really this 1954 season because the uh, Pirates are gonna, only going to play two more years in Waco. And we have to think historically what's going on in the mid-1950s a lot of folks are leaving downtown Waco, so population is leaving mm -hmm. downtown Waco. Uh, you have things like televised sports. You have things like television itself. Uh, even interest in uh, even the rise of other baseball, like Little League Baseball, which, of course, is a big deal here in Waco. Explosion of television, all these sorts of things. So 1956 is going to be the last season that the Waco Pirates play in Waco. And of the eight teams in the big state league, Waco was sixth in attendance Wow! Uh, that season. And so their attendance drops off. I think their total attendance that year was around 40,000 uh, spectators. There's all sorts of things that could be blamed for them leaving town, but uh, it's going to be the lack of fan support, which is what the Pirates are looking for, not poor performance that, that makes them leave town. It's too bad. It is sad. This is a period where... A lot of changes are taking place in professional baseball. This is when the Giants move. This is when the Dodgers move. So, you know, this move from the East Coast to the West Coast. So a lot of things are being reorganized as baseball is becoming big business in the 1950s. There's some stats on changes that happen. This is really interesting. This is, here's some stats from 1956. This is the president of the National Association of Professional Baseball Leagues said that at that time, there were 213 minor league teams in 28 leagues. In 1949, so seven years earlier, there were 448 teams in 59 leagues. Just really shrank. Yeah, so you have an attendance of 17 million overall in 56, down from 42 million in 1949. Yeah, so uh, a big drop overall as kind of, baseball and entertainment is changing. So there's been several attempts uh, to try to reinvigorate a uh, independent or an affiliated minor league team in baseball since the 1950s. Baylor uses Katie Park some on and off, and they use it in the late 1950s. By 1965, it's raised, it's knocked down. So the stadium that was built new in 1954 has a short life. And actually folks that from that period remember a junkyard that put in on that particular plot. It eventually becomes vacant, but for many years, there's a junkyard there at 8th and Jackson. Is there anything that has survived from the stadium at all, or is it just completely wiped off the face of the map? You can see elements around the stadium are the same that I kind of talked about before, mm -hmm. but there's really no features of the stadium itself that are left. What do you think the future of baseball looks like in Waco? Do you think that maybe Waco could support a team like a lot of other towns of not much larger size than Waco can and, and why people soured on baseball here. You know this well. Waco's kind of trending right now. Mm -hmm. uh, we've kind of been trending in recent years. There was an effort 
to create the Waco Blue Cats that we're going to have a field out in Bell Mead. I know that effort has stalled, but there's been discussion of doing that. I think what might make it feasible to do something like that is the fact that you're you're getting a population density downtown again, mm-hmm. and you have an active downtown. And of course, you, aside from Baylor, you don't have a lot of competition with other professional sports. Mm-hmm. So there's great examples like Corpus Christi and and you have things like the Round Rock Express that are a a AAA affiliate of the Houston Astros that are really successful. They have a strong local following and they have a lot of brand loyalty there in town. I I think like something like that could happen in Waco. Mm -hmm. I think there's a way that could happen. I think that people could support it. And, you know, COVID definitely changed the landscape a bit, but, you know, with lots of tourists coming into Waco, I can't think of anything better than going to a baseball game. If you're in town going to check out the silos, you could like stay around and check out a baseball game at night. That'd be a really cool thing to do. There's been many failed attempts and many discussions over the years. There's some in the 90s or some in the 2000s about creating a minor league team. And it all comes down to stadium. Hmm. Who's going to fund the stadium? So if, if you have a stadium that works for it, uh, one of the reasons why uh, le- leasing the uh, Baylor baseball stadium doesn't work is alcohol sales. Ah. Uh, you got to have alcohol sales if you're going to make this thing profitable. And so coming down to a venue and getting a venue funded, I think that's what the Bell Mead team ran into. And so someone's going to have to step up that really wants baseball and build a $15 million stadium. Well, I hope I live to see that become a reality because that would be really fun to go to a baseball game in Waco. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. I've been to a Hooks game, Corpus Christi Hooks, <laughs> and uh, they're a lot of fun. I know we've talked about my hometown before on the podcast, Tulsa, yeah. but they, they've got the Drillers, and that's yeah. a really fun team, and they've got a stadium that has a great view of downtown, and it brings a lot of people out there. I think so. I mean, this time of year to go to an afternoon game, that would be awesome. So if you're listening and you have the means to build a $15 million stadium in Waco, it would be great. That's right. Randy, what would you suggest a name for the team? Twisters. <laughs> it's too soon, Randy. It's way, it's way uh, too soon. I did see uh, there is going to be a mascot for the new Katy Park. So you can go play wiffle ball at the new Katy Ballpark at the Silos. And you can also see their mascot there, Okay. Uh, which is the Silo. <laughs> it's not really intimidating or anything. It, it is not. And I've seen a rendering of the actual mascot, and it looks a little bit like the Tin Man. <laughs> so it's the silo. It is the Waco silos. But you can go there. You can get your nachos. You can get your sloppy joes. You can get your ballpark fair. Uh, play some uh, wiffle ball. Some world-class wiffle ball action. And uh, root for your home team, the silos. You know, I think we're missing the obvious one, the mammoths. Yeah, that's good. There's all sorts of bad choices. Uh, I think we could choose, but yeah, that's a nice one. (laughs) Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Again, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Brotherwell Brewing. They're the official local beer of the Waco History Podcast. 
Swing by their historic Bridge Street location for a Bridge Street wit. This Belgian-style wheat beer celebrates the brewery's location and the Waco Suspension Bridge. The bridge was the safest way for people to cross the Brazos when it opened in 1870. Order some brews at brotherwellbrewing.com and then pick them up curbside. So convenient. That's brotherwellwell.com. We'll see you next time. Then the night came alive with gunfire. He knew that at last it'd been found. As the ranger's badge showed brightly, El Bandito lay on the ground. Carmela knew he was dying, that all of her dreams were in vain. As she kissed his lips for the last time, she heard him whisper again. Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco, I'm safe when I reach San Antonio. I'm safe when I reach San Antonio.